Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 3rd of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Theresa May could be leading the United Kingdom into a super soft Brexit with a branded Marxist collaborator, according to Jacob Rees-Mogg. The Prime Minister's offer to work with that so-called Marxist James or Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader, is a betrayal, according to Boris Johnson, who says Brexit will become soft to the point of disintegration. The leading voices in the ERG group are not the only Tories who are angry. UK government ministers argued at a seven-hour marathon cabinet meeting yesterday to leave the EU without a deal. In all 14 ministers, including the Brexit secretary, took that position. Mrs May has instead decided to try and agree with Jeremy Corbyn how to get her withdrawal agreement through the House of Commons. She is clear that the deal cannot be renegotiated and that leaving with a deal means a backstop for Northern Ireland. The DUP is not too pleased Ireland uh, either. Uh, Mairead McGuinness is a Fine Gael MEP and first Vice President of the European Parliament. She joins us this morning. Good morning to you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Can you make sense of what happened in the last 24 hours? Well, good morning, Michael. I think you've pretty much summarised very effectively what's happened, but I think we're still trying to find out what happened. And maybe we would need to be a fly on the wall of that very long Conservative um, Party, or Cabinet, rather, meeting that took place in London yesterday, because I think we were rather taken by surprise when the uh, Prime Minister, Theresa May, made her speech, and I've a marked-up copy here in front of me. Mm. But to some extent, I think we're, we're also recognising that this is a considerable step towards trying to get the, rat- the withdrawal agreement ratified with the cooperation of the Labour Party. And clearly what that has, uh, I suppose, amounted to is that Theresa May has stopped trying to heal wounds within the Conservative Party to appease the DUP and indeed the ERG group um, mm. of hard Brexiteers and is reaching across to the leader of the opposition to try and get common purpose and a way forward. 
And I suppose it really will depend on how they get along in terms of um, an agreement that can get the support of the House of Commons. Okay, let's uh, be boringly technical, if we can, for a moment, uh, because uh, the withdrawal agreement is the withdrawal agreement, according to Mrs May. It cannot be renegotiated. It means leaving with a backstop for Northern Ireland. That's the beginning and the end of that conversation. Uh, There is another element to this called the political declaration, and she's hoping that change to that might uh, allow MPs to back her, uh, but obviously not all uh, of the Tory party. Indeed, and I think what's very um, welcoming from a European perspective is that recognition, and she has stuck to her guns on the withdrawal agreement. She has negotiated it, she got reassurances, and she knows it's not for reopening. So from our particular standpoint, that's a very positive uh, message to hear again. But yes, there is room for flexibility in the political declaration. And that then looks towards the leader of the opposition. What does um, the Labour Party want? And we know they've talked about a customs union of some sort and perhaps even a a confirmatory referendum. Uh, But the one issue that is not resolved for me as I look at the detail is the timing of all of this, because we are just one week away from the European Council meeting um, Mm. on April the 10th to look at the response from the Prime Minister. So she will be there telling of her plans and the D-Day was meant to be the 12th so the, the extension as, as we speak now is the 12th yeah. of April Well a, a week from today she's to go back to Europe and say look mm-hmm. we have a, a, a deal or we're leaving on Friday of next week Or oh, we have a plan to a have plan. this yeah. ratification mm-hmm. yeah, I think the plan is, is the key word for me but the, the, the complexity is as follows April the 12th was significant because at that point preparations would have to start for the European Parliament elections in the United Kingdom, although mm. I understand that returning officers are beginning to do some work. If she wants to avoid European Parliament elections, the UK needs to leave uh, on the day before the elections. She, she, that's her view, the 22nd, mm. 23rd of, of May. And that's um, it. The EU said either a short extension or a long extension until after the elections. Uh, she's looking for something in between. She has gone for that middle ground, uh, which at this point um, we're, we're open to looking at that possibility, but we're also concerned about the timing. For example, at what point will the House of Commons actually vote on the withdrawal agreement and ratify it? Because this Parliament has to ratify it as well for it to be legal and above board and to meet all of our, our, you know, our mm. criteria. And we will be uh, disbanding here as a parliament at the, you know, before Easter week, around the 20th or plus the 4th of, of April. So there would need to be recall, perhaps, to get this process through. Now, I think we can get over all of those things, but it's not as easy as it seems. But if the prime minister comes forward after a few days of discussion, which I presume will take place mm. with the leader of the opposition, and they have a joint plan that they both will stick to, which gives us clarity of purpose, then great flexibility can and I think should be shown to the United Kingdom. I suppose there are questions about why in the 11th hour has this happened, why not sooner, and we'll all ask those questions uh, as we ponder how close we are getting to the abyss. But on the other hand, better now than not at all. Well, yeah, and if it's doable, well, great, but is it doable and how would it work in practice? If they were to get an extension past the 22nd of May, and not stand candidates in the European election, would they still come under European rules, regulations, legislation and contribute to the European budget? But if you look at her statement, she says that the UK wants to agree a timetable for a bill 
uh, to ensure that it's passed before the 22nd of May so that the UK does not take part in elections. Now, I'm hoping that she has, uh, you know, the plan well worked out to hit those targets. Europe will have some difficulty around them, but I think we can be flexible. But they have to ratify in the UK before we can ratify here. And and clearly what will be important, uh, Donald Tusk, the president of the council, made a very short statement, you know, Mm. know, not not overwhelmingly saying this is great, all will be well, but just recognising that something had happened and patience would be needed. Um, I think Michel Barney and others are just, you know, waiting to see what will emerge from these uh, talks, because that had been the view all along from here was, if you can't get it agreed internally, then you need to get a majority across the House. Mm. And that hadn't happened. And in fact, some of the, the speeches, I think, from the Prime Minister had caused people to r- rush away from the withdrawal agreement rather than come towards it. I think perhaps last night will change the dynamic. But look what happened in the last few days. Look at the speech and comments of Nick Bowles, a very strong Conservative mm. member, who has literally left the party because mm. he said, and it's very, very interesting what he's saying, that he couldn't pretend to be part of a party that didn't recognise his views anymore and that there is no one Conservative party, there's two. Mm. Internally, this party is very divided. That's troubling um, if you want to make progress. Uh, And how that resignation took place uh, spoke uh, uh, volumes. Uh, The shake in his voice uh, as he was clearly upset at having to leave the party that obviously... Uh, is in his blood uh, and the reaction to it uh, and the calls for him please don't do this please stay yeah talk about drama and Mm. high tension and emotion i don't think we're living through as uh, an emotive time as now i don't think as many people in ireland have watched the house of commons in the detail that we are now doing watching votes and trying to see how this will move forward um, my, 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 when I heard the speech last night, or indeed was alerted to it happening, I suppose it was fear and dread as to what mm. the Prime Minister might be saying. When I looked at the detail of it, she certainly, in a way, is, is more open, but I think there's also a sense in which she is handing this poison chalice to the leader of the opposition and saying, come with me, and, and bring him inside the tent. She has angered greatly uh, her internal um, Brexiteers and perhaps others, so we will be quite conscious of the numbers game and also of the mood in the United Kingdom. I'm very sensitive and aware that citizens in the United Kingdom, whatever way they mm. voted, are very troubled by what is happening in the but House. But she, she, she's grinding everybody down, isn't she? Isn't she really being given space uh, to wear everybody out? Well, I, well, that was one good description of it. I think Nick Bowles was saying that on the one hand he admires her steely determination, her you know, gritting her teeth and trying to get on with it. On the other as he said, I'm furious with her because she has allowed this to happen. She didn't try to compromise early on. Mm. She didn't have these confirmatory uh, votes or indicative votes before she triggered Article 50. And I suppose we're all in that what if Mm. had happened, but we're in now what is. And I think when we're in this place now, what we need to be is patient. We do not know what the twists and turns of British politics will be, but we're absolutely certain about the European Union. The withdrawal agreement, Mm. you know, fairly negotiated, remains our commitment to the United Kingdom with the reassurances. But there is openness to changing the political decade. And they say they're entering into these talks with everything on the table. A customs union is on the table. A longer extension is on the table. Another referendum is on on the table. They're not ruling anything out. Uh, it doesn't follow, though, that they'll get an agreement from Jeremy Corbyn. 
Well, nothing is certain, and I think you're right. Nothing is being ruled out. But we had an interesting hearing yesterday in the committee dealing with Brexit from two representatives of the House of Lords. They were presenting a report called Beyond Brexit, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And in that uh, presentation, um, I remarked that a no-deal scenario, which we're all fearful of, is not a permanent state of affairs. And the, the Lord present uh, agreed with my, my summation mm. that within a very short space of hours or days after a no-deal scenario, the United Kingdom would need to come to Europe and ask to uh, reopen negotiations. And the first things on the table would be citizens, the budgetary contribution, mm. and the backstop for Northern Ireland. So whatever which way you turn in this, mm-hmm. you cannot but deal with the issues that are pertinent on the here and now, and they're dealt with in the withdrawal agreement. And of course, they'll be in a very weak bargaining position. Uh, is it inevitable that there'll be a general election in the United Kingdom now? I think a lot of people think it's heading in that direction. Um, of course, Jeremy Corbyn's entire you know, focus is on making that happen. Um, perhaps the Prime Minister knows that that will happen, mm. given that she has um, offered a hand of friendship across the House. But you never know. And I think I have been, I suppose, uh, watching uh, British politics at, at a much closer level of recent times. And, you know, there's been twists and turns in this saga to date, which none of us would have anticipated. Mm. Do you remember the determination of the Prime Minister when she triggered Article 50? Out, out, out was the rhetoric. No customs, mm. no market, etc. Uh, compare that with last night, when I think the penny took a long time to drop in the United mm. Kingdom, both with the political level and in citizens, that, you know, Europe is actually a very positive force. Yes, it's flawed. Yeah. But a lot of what is good about our lives comes from being part of the European Union. And if you pull out of that, you lose a great deal. But it, it's impossible not to imagine that there will be an election now. If you look at what's happened in the last 24 hours alone, she's severed her ties, uh, if you like, with the ERG group and effectively lost the support of 30 members. Uh, You'll probably see more Nick Bowles uh, who'll uh, be looking at defecting from the party because they're so disillusioned with what's happened. Uh, backbenchers are said to be livid that she's trying to do a deal with uh, the leader of uh, the Labour Party. She's severed her ties with the DUP and that deal that she's trying to do with the Labour Party is with the leader of a party who wants a general election. Well, I think, you know, uh, it's not for me to speculate what will happen in politics in the United Kingdom, but certainly we're all watching to see what does emerge. And, you know, you've, you've really pulled together the difficulties that the uh, Prime Minister faces uh, in, in leading the country. It is a divided country, and I don't think any of us should take any um, pleasure in what is happening to the United Kingdom. It's very deeply divided. I was watching, you know, live on television, you know, people shouting traitor and treason mm. with venom rather than in jest. And I think that the body of politics is also very um, disturbed. I, I know a lot of people in the House of Commons have sleepless nights, are very stressed by what's happening. So I think we should just be mindful of the difficulties they're going through and that nobody would wish that on a country or on a parliament. But it is their problem now, and mm. I hope that the Prime Minister has the strength to deliver on what she says in her speech last night and can deliver an orderly Brexit that is softer than the hardliners in her own party would wish. Yeah, um, the political commentators seem uh, to be expecting ministers to resign today. Does it hinge on how many ministers resign and in what time frame the resignations come? 
uh, on whether there will be an election in the immediate days? Well, I suppose my focus is on other elections, European Parliament elections, so I've enough on my plate to to look at our situation here, given that the Brexit thing is going to be prolonged a little bit more. And I'll I'll read, as you are, all of the commentary around Mm. what might happen. But this saga and this story has taken unexpected turns. I think an election, uh, if it were called, would certainly require a longer extension to Article 50, because I don't think it would be at all appropriate that the UK, if there had to be elections, would crash out of the European Union in the middle of an election. I mean, can you imagine the the chaos? But we live in uncharted times here, and we only hope that everybody is really focusing on what's best for their country and for the citizens they represent and the citizens I represent. And an orderly Brexit is what we all need at this stage. And we have already charted that course at EU level, and we hope that the United Kingdom can come along on that journey with us. Mm. Who does Mrs May represent? She is still the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom Mm. and I think we have to respect that fully and I would not envy her her task while I might take issue with how she has arrived at this place. Um, You know, I think that the task she faces when she wakes up in the morning, if she ever gets asleep, Mm. is a very daunting one. But her her Defence Minister said the position, uh, the approach she's taking is ridiculous. Well, whatever he thinks, that's his view. What I think for the Prime Minister now, I think she understands very well the dangers and damage of a no-deal Brexit. And as you rightly reflected, Mm. in that scenario for the UK to come back and then look for talks, they would be weakened in that process. And no, no country wants to weaken itself deliberately. Europe doesn't want to see the United Kingdom weakened because they will be our close neighbour and our partners. So we just have to be very very mindful that while we stand our own ground and, you know, do that with great determination, we also have to respect a very difficult politics in the United Kingdom and Mm. allow them get on with that internally and hope that they come to a good place. That's the question. Are they getting on with it? Uh, Is it possible that we'll see uh, the 14 people who are photographed on uh, the front of uh, the Daily Telegraph resign their ministries today? Well, all things are possible, um, so one doesn't rule out any of these things. Um, but, but, you know, they have six-term parliaments in mm. the United States. But 40 ministers saying, leave with no deal, that's very worrying, isn't it? it well, it, it's rather a strong um, section of her uh, cabinet that mm. takes you. I, I would hope that they would read reports written by their colleagues in the House of Lords who are free of, if you like, electoral issues, um, but they have written some very sound reports on Brexit, including on the consequences for the island of Ireland. Mm. And, you know, it is time for people to not so much abandon their principle, but perhaps read first and then decide, because I I fear that a lot of those who think that a a no-deal Brexit, that Britain is so big and so strong, it can get on with it. You know, the Prime Minister herself said that she believes that uh, the UK could make a success of a no deal in the long term mm. but leaving with a deal is the best solution I happen to agree fully with her words I think in fact that a, you know, a no deal in the long term would cause a lot of pain in the very short and medium term to business, to people, to education to our relationships mm. uh, her relationships with Europe I think she understands that very well clearly there are others who do not and there is little that we can say or do to try and influence them, but perhaps reaching across to the opposition in the best interest of the country, a, a better outcome can come forward than we've seen in recent votes in the United Kingdom. 
All right. Um, I, I shouldn't mention this because I'm actually well over time, but uh, say hello to Bridge, who I believe is part of uh, the delegation you're showing around the Parliament. She, she is indeed, and I will uh, with, yeah. with great mm. fondness, and uh, I'm sure she'll bring back plenty of stories here. They're going to mm. listen to a very interesting debate on Brexit. So Very good. A, a large delegation from the North East uh, who, who you've exactly. brought over uh, to see firsthand the workings of the Parliament, which is something you yeah. do quite often, I think. We do indeed. Thank you okay, very much indeed. Good morning, Michael. Good morning to you, Finnegal MEP Mairead McGuinness is uh, the first Vice President of uh, the European Parliament. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, it has been a pretty dramatic 24 hours in British politics, in European politics uh, for that matter, and one of those days where I think it's worth taking a look at the front of the British newspapers this morning. We'll begin with uh, the Metro May Brexit sensation. It's Jez, the two of us PM calls for pact with Corbyn, that's Jez, uh, gives up on backing from Tories, could accept super soft EU deal branded Marxist collaborator. That's uh, because of comments from Jacob Breeze Mogg. Cabinet backs no deal Brexit, but May turns to Corbyn instead. That's the headline on the front of the Daily Telegraph, uh, which shows photographs of the 14 ministers who said that they would prefer to leave without a deal. The Daily Mirror in the UK. Brexit sensation is again the headline. Help me, Jeremy. Desperate May's plea to Corbyn for joint approach as she delays EU exit. Hardline Tories fury over move to softer deal while Jezza says he'll talk. The Sun PM to Corbyn. Help! I think that's how you pronounce it, with uh, about five L's in the middle. After seven hours of cabinet lockdown, May's gone soft over Brexit mess. Is that your bright idea is the question on the front of the sun with a photograph of Theresa May with a light bulb over her head and Jeremy Corbyn's face inset in that bulb. The Daily Mail. May delays Brexit again in capital letters. And kills off no deal. Boris leads Tory fury as Corbyn invited to compromise talks. Seven-hour cabinet told national unity trumps party. Theresa's last stand, according to the Daily Mail. The Times. May invites Corbyn to break Brexit deadlock. PM risks Tory wrath as cross-party talks open way to soft departure. The Guardian. May calls for talks with Corbyn in bid to save Brexit. The Daily Express. After a marathon cabinet meeting, PM throws down gauntlet to end Brexit deadlock. It's time for national unity. Over to you, Mrs Corbyn. And the Express is describing it as a Brexit gamble. The Financial Times says May inflames Tory civil war by opening door to softer Brexit. Bid to face down hardliners. Offer to work with Corbyn. Customs Union gains ground. And the I says May calls in Corbyn to break impasse. Prime Minister paves the way for soft Brexit by offering to hold talks with Labour leader. Dismayed Brexiteers warn key powers will be handed over to Brussels. Snap general election ruled out after marathon cabinet meeting. MPs in cross-party effort to stop UK leaving 
without a deal. That's uh, what the papers in the United Kingdom are saying this morning. Let's find out what the papers in the North East are saying. Marie Kearns is here with uh, the front pages of uh, the local papers in Louth and Mead. And we're going yes. to begin this week, Marie, in Mead and the Mead Chronicle. That's right. And it's all about the money on the front page of the Mead Chronicle today. Four hundred and fifty. No, €454 million as the paper unveils details of the council's spending plan for the county. Paul Murphy is reporting that in one of its most ambitious capital programmes ever, Meath County Council's plans to spend the €454 million on housing and building, roads, transportation and safety as well as the environment, economic development and recreation and amenity over the next three years. The single biggest spend will be in the housing and building area with €230 million to be invested in that, Michael. So hopefully that will be good news for those on the housing lists. All right, so that uh, elaborate uh, legal cigarette and alcohol factory in Knockbridge makes for the lead story on the Argus front page that, this week. In that's Dundalk. right, it does indeed. Uh, and there's also a lovely editorial inside the Argus, Michael, dedicated to Father Michael Cusack, who we've had on this programme, the rector of St. Joseph in Dundalk, who's leaving shortly for Galway and indicative of the man and his tenure in the town. He'll go out in a blaze with a farewell concert in Carradale on April 13th that will raise funds for three worthy charities. Very good. Uh, we'll stay in Dundalk, uh, the Democrat uh, leading with yes, that factory as well. Yes, and just speaking of Brexit, it was just interesting in all the, the, the papers from the UK, there wasn't much about Brexit on the front page, apart from a picture in the Dundalk Democrat uh, on that protest on Saturday the border communities had uh, in in the um, they had them around the country but there was also one there the far side of Dundalk but the Democrat also has coverage of a major news survey on Dundalk Town Centre, so that's worth checking out as well. Okay, the tragic death of a, a local person makes for the front pages of uh, the local papers in Drogheda. Yes, both Drogheda papers are leading with that tragic story that has left the town absolutely reeling that of the death of Lynn Brown, who tragically lost her life, Michael, after falling down the stairs on Mother Day, Mother's Day on the weekend that she had celebrated her 40th birthday. Tears for Wonderful Lynn is the headline of the Drogheda Independent front page story, which pays tribute to the inspirational art teacher to describing her as beautiful inside and out. While the leader reports that the family of the mom of one have asked mourners to wear something colourful to Lynn's funeral tomorrow in tribute to her personality. And there really has been an outpouring of deep shock and genuine sadness following her death and her sympathies to her family and many, many friends in the area. Meanwhile, Michael, I have to mention a story inside the Drogheda Independent. Most, I don't want to stereotype great-grandmothers, but you'd expect them to be kind of sitting at home putting their feet up, wouldn't you? But mm. not 74-year-old Betty Mahon, who did a daring skydive recently and raised 5500 for cystic fibrosis in the process. So well done to the Stimullen woman. Life goals, Michael, life goals. <laughs> mm, very young woman anyway. All she right. is, but okay. still, to jump out of an aeroplane, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I think you'd find it difficult to get on an aeroplane, but that's another would. day's work. All right, we leave it there for the moment. Uh, you'll be back uh, with uh, some of the comments that come to us this morning. If any comments do come to us, uh, and if uh, you're interested in those stories uh, that uh, we've been hearing about from the local papers, something else you've been listening to this morning, or for that matter, if there's an issue that you'd like to raise with us, you can ring Marie and Maggie now on eighteen fifty seven one five nine five eight. Michael Reed on L. 
Uh, the executive vice president of uh, the Football Association of Ireland, John Delaney, will appear before the Oireachtas Sports Committee this day next week. And one of the questions Mr Delaney will be asked is why he stepped down as chief executive officer to assume this new title. Uh, We'll hear his own reasons for it uh, a little bit later on, but let's uh, talk uh, to the chair of uh, that committee, Fergus O'Dowd, who's a Fine Gael TD. Good morning to you, Deputy O'Dowd, uh, for joining us here in the programme this morning. You have Sport Ireland in front of you today, uh, and uh, the uh, theme will be somewhat similar, will it not? Well, yes. Basically, the government gives money to lots of sporting organisations, and the vehicle they use is Sports Ireland, which is run by John Tracy, former very special Olympic athlete. Uh, and he's coming in along with Kieran Mulvey to talk to us about, you know, how they manage the monies that they get from the state going to the FAI particularly and to talk about questions we have and they have about the FAI and about what we call governance. In other words, how they how they run their organisation, how they yeah. spend the money. Uh, and uh, that's that's what we'll be doing today. They're well, coming uh, in. Uh, sorry, Michael, go ahead. I'm yeah. sorry. The, the, the FAI apparently commissioned a, a report into its governance uh, yes. by Jonathan Hall and Associates. And, and this report recommends Mr Delaney splitting his role or that his role would have been split uh, and uh, that uh, there would be a chief executive role uh, and uh, this new title of executive vice president to, to share out all of the duties that he had because apparently he was doing an awful lot. Uh, but uh, John Tracy has said he didn't even know that this uh, report had been commissioned, let alone anything else about it. Yes, and we have asked for a copy of that report and up to close of business yesterday, neither Sports Ireland nor ourselves have a copy of that report. So that's a key issue because the, the remit of our committee is in fact governance of any organisation that is wholly or partly funded by the taxpayer. So that, that, that there are huge questions that we need answered mm. and clearly having sight of that report is hugely important. Does it seem odd to you that Sports Ireland was not consulted about this report and after the report was delivered, does it seem odd to you that Sports Ireland was not consult- consulted about the structural change? In other words, the splitting of the chief executive role into that new uh, role of executive vice president uh, alongside the role of chief executive. But well, that's why we have them in today, Michael, to get their uh, to get their their standing on all of these issues to understand how they interact with the FAI how they make sure now what they they have assured us that the 2.9 million that they give every year to to the FAI is spent on basically on 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 youth field sports program mm. and they've audited that quite a number of times and they're satisfied absolutely that money is properly spent uh, you know on the grassroots on education player development and development staff mm. So there's no issue about that funding. But there are issues about Sports Ireland not being told about about other points. And the key document that that the FAI have is their Sports Ireland Terms and Condition Grant Approval Application Form. Mm. And on that, in order to approve funding to this organisation, if that's any organisation that applied, Sports Ireland must be satisfied that appropriate arrangements are in place for the overall governance and management of the organisation. So like, yeah. your questions go to the heart of that. Okay. So if an organisation mm. is making changing like that, has a governance report and hasn't given it to Sports Ireland, how do they react to that? And, and you know, what do, what must they do next? And these are, I don't know the answer 
answers to those questions, mm. but they're the questions we'll be asking. Well, that's, that's a very interesting point, uh, I think, uh, and uh, leads me into the next question, uh, because I think there'll be an awful lot of interest in your meeting today and what questions you do ask and what the answers are. But would I be right in thinking that there's little scope in learning much more about what's happened in the FAI today, and I don't mean any disrespect to you or the members of the committee or to Sports Ireland, but you'll be asking the right question. Sports Ireland, it seems, will be saying, I don't know the answer. I want to know the answer. I asked the questions myself. I didn't get the uh, answers. Uh, And then the FAI will be back in or will be into you next week. Is it most likely that Sports Ireland will have to come into you again following uh, the FAI appearance next Wednesday? That could well be the case, Uh, but like as it is now, we have our two meetings. But but mm. you are quite right. I mean, but the due process that we're doing is that if our job is to examine the governance of, of the FAI, if mm. we didn't have Sports Ireland in and ask them the hard questions first, uh, you know, we wouldn't be doing our job uh, objectively. So mm. by bringing them in now, yeah. we think that's hugely important because well, it gives us clear, a direct line of communication, uh, you know, and the detail of that. Mm. And obviously how Sports Ireland intend to address the deficit of knowledge Mm. that clearly is there and neither have they been informed of the details of the 100,000 loan and we haven't been Mm. informed of that either. We've written three times Mm. to the FAI about it. So the Mm. the, the other point Michael is that the FAI have indicated uh, to us uh, that they were sending a number of of officials and if the committee agrees we propose to make sure that they will send in the president of the FAI, uh, the honorary treasurer, and the, and the people who are responsible for governance in the FAI, mm. uh, because they're the people that, that we have to... Yeah, we have well, to absolutely, and they're the only people who can answer uh, the questions that we have, yes. Uh, yeah. And it, it would seem as though you're going to ask uh, Sports Ireland, uh, I'd be surprised if you didn't, uh, what do you know about the €100,000 loan? Of course, yes. And they'll course, say, yeah. Yeah. don't really know anything about it, and then you'll say, well, did you not ask? And they'll say, yes, we did ask, uh, but we didn't get uh, sufficient answers. Uh, when the FAI comes in front of you, it seems as though they're going to say, well, this sort of thing happens every year, that uh, money is delayed coming to us, it's deferred, in, come from grants, uh, sponsorship, commercial agreements, uh, and the money was just needed to tide us over until that money came in. Yeah, and, and the answer to the question then is, Again, going back to the the document I referred to, the application form which the FAI filled in, uh, and it says on it that in addition that they undertake to notify Sports Ireland in writing without delay in the event of any material deterioration in its financial position or any other matter which may jeopardise the organisation's overall financial viability or its ability to comply Mm. with its conditions. And thereafter to provide Sports Ireland with such information and documentation as their request in connection with the relevant matter and any steps being taken to rectify it. So like, so, they, so they're, they're the questions. Mm. Are they, if these are the regulations and the rules, you know, clearly they, they haven't got the information or they haven't been compiled, com, sorry, complied with. So like the question then arises, uh, you know, about, about, about the whole competency of of the you know of of the FAI in relation to being accountable in the way that they sign up to when they take the two point nine million. Are they obligated so, so. to uh, appear before you? Uh, yes, well, they are. Yes, they mm. they are. They are. Yes, because we we're entitled to 
uh, our job as a committee is to uh, is to look at the governance issues in relation to any body which is mm. entirely or partly funded by the taxpayer. Um, so, but like a different question, maybe you're thinking of, you know, it, you know, we we we're entitled to ask the questions, and mm. obviously they're obliged to give us the answers. But I think the bigger—I don't mean rudely—but the picture for people out there, young people who play the sports, mums and dads mm. who bring their children to the, everybody that stands, as we said before, on the sideline on a, on western cold and windy days, uh, to watch their their team playing, you know. Mm. They're the people that really count and that at the outcome of all of this must be, you know, a more accountable, uh, a better organized, uh, you know, body that, you know, that everybody buys into in terms of, you know, its transparency and accountability. And it's particularly in relation to the obligations that are on it when it it applies for funding. Okay, as I say, uh, John Delaney has been speaking himself about his new role. Uh, We'll finish off our conversation with what Mr Delaney had to say. So thank you for joining us, Fergus O'Dowd, who's the chair of the Oireachtas Sports Committee. Uh, We'll be hearing more from that committee, obviously, later on in the day. And as to why John Delaney has stepped aside from being the chief executive of the FAI and become the executive vice president. The way, the, the way it's been with the association over the last number of years has been, a, you know, in my own personal case, I've been trying to um, attend grassroots football functions and games every weekend, and, and I've given my life to that, and I love it. I get great energy out of it. I love helping the clubs. I love meeting the volunteers. I love, I love grassroots people. And then during the week, there's a there's a, an organisation with a turnover of 50 million and 200 staff, so it's a huge organisation now. And then there's a huge international dimension. I'm on the board of UEFA, um, as it is, but apart from that, there is a feasibility study to, to, to do a World Cup bid with England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. There are meetings uh, in England next week on that, and that's making significant progress. There's an under-21 bid, um, for the under-21 Euros with Northern Ireland in 2023. I mean, it's amazing that that round ball, the football can unite two associations in that regard. There's centralised television deals to be done. Um, we're starting that process of negotiating that with UEFA, which is, you know, a lot of money for, 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 for the FAI, which then means a lot of money for grassroots football and, and other projects. Um, and I could go on. There, there, there's the generation of revenue in other parts of the world like America and Australia the Irish diaspora which we've never really looked at yet and they're the t- just a snapshot of, of the projects that, that I'm now you know, turning my attention to and it really was impossible to, to do the three jobs I just laid out to you for, 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 for one person and that's why the association uh, commissioned an, in, an independent report just to, to split the duties so I'm looking forward to it and, and, and that there, there's also the um, under 17 euros which is coming to Dublin in May um, we're hosting that in, 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 in Ireland there will be games played in Dublin in Longford, in Bray and in Waterford that brings 9,000 bed spaces to Ireland we had the, um, the draw for the European draw in Dublin in, in December, which brought huge business into Ireland. So uh, a mix of, uh, I'm giving you a flavour of, of what's ahead for, for, for me, and um, I, I, I know there's a lot that we can deliver over the next number of years um, internationally for the good of Irish football from a funding perspective and from hosting major tournaments. John Delaney speaking to Tip FM. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of the calls and text messages uh, that have come to us uh, this morning. Has uh, there been many people on the phones? Of course there has, Michael. Yes, lots lots of comments from today and yesterday indeed. I have some left over. But we'll go to today's first and on Brexit. Jim from Drogheda says, there seems to be extremes on both the Remain and the Leave side, but there are so many in the middle, Michael, and that is, is, is what's causing the current debt luck. Theresa May is grasping at straws at this stage. I think they're going to end up going without a deal because they just can't agree, says Jim. Mm. Bob from Dundalk phoned in and he says, we're listening here on our tea break to Maraid McGuinness talking Mm. and I feel that she's scaremongering. It's all doom and gloom and that's because she is a pro-EU. You have to remember, Michael, under 17.5 million voted to get out and the will of the people in the UK should be accepted. The world will still go around Mm. It isn't that long ago that the EU were going to throw us out for non-payment of debt. When we joined the EU, it was for trade and commerce, no, no, not no, to no, be dictated to. Hold on, the EU never threatened to throw us out. What's that about? This is what Bob is saying. Well, you, well, you can't just say it. No, the EU never threatened to throw Ireland out. Well, they came down heavy on us. They, they, they did come down heavy on us, I suppose. He's, he's bringing it another yeah. little step further. Well, yeah, he's making it up as he goes along, I think. Uh, and we can't do that, obviously. Uh, but uh, no, I don't think we've ever been threatened. Uh, we've been expelled from uh, the European Union, nor will we ever. And I don't think anybody has uh, told uh, the UK what to do or what not to do in terms of whether Mairead McGuinness is scaremongering or whatever way you heard it for that matter. I think one of the criticisms of the Irish politicians is that they won't interfere and very purposely so for fear of being accused of interfering in how a sovereign country decides its ultimate fate. It's a little too late, says Declan from Drogheda, for Theresa May to be turning to the Labour leader for help. She should have known before now that she would never get the DUP to change their minds. She wasted too much time on that. Well, maybe so, but she's going ahead without them. And this is the peculiar position uh, and perhaps the sword on which she will fall because she's not just going against the DUP. And don't forget, she relies Mm. on the support of the the DUP in order to be able to govern. She's going against the will of a fairly significant amount of Tory MPs, it would seem, against the will of a number of ministers. She's already lost a number of ministers. Mm. 40 ministers uh, were arguing against her, it would seem, according to the Telegraph this morning and saying leave without a a deal. Uh, She's looking for Labour as a a lifeline uh, and that's not sitting well with a lot of people. Yes, well David from Navin doesn't think that she'll mind annoying her party members by seeking support from Jeremy Corbyn because... It really is the last throw of the dice. And what has she got to lose, Michael? Yeah, well, it is the last throw of the dice. And this was explained to the BBC this morning by the Brexit secretary, who is Steve Barkley. And he was saying, essentially, that when it comes down to it, this is really a numbers game. There's a wide range of things that have come out from different EU leaders. Uh, firstly, many of them do not want no deal themselves. Uh, Secondly, where they've talked about a long extension, they've talked about it being for a clear purpose and that clear purpose is ill-defined if the House cannot agree. So what we need to do is... Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Established with the Labour Party, whether there is scope in terms of the future arrangement rather than the winding down arrangement for some common ground, uh, and to see whether we can come to agreement. Because when the House does agree, do it can EU move very says, quickly. Forgive me, we'll come to how quickly they can move in a sec. If the EU says, no, no, you can't have another short extension, you can have a great long extension while you make your minds up. Well, what is agreed by the EU Council on the 10th is agreed at 28, so it does require the UK government's agreement. It is not a, a issue where the 27 can simply impose their decision on the UK. That is something that is agreed at the 28 level. And you say you want to move quickly. Are you talking of moving today? Well, the discussions will be today between the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition. Now, if those don't bear fruit, we will then need to look at, for example, whether uh, there is scope, for example, for indicative votes that are binding, because the indicative votes to date have not been binding. But then again, the House, on all the votes that have been presented so far, have failed to reach any agreement. So that is why we're having the discussions in the national interest to see if common ground can be reached. Politicians always have an interesting way of talking and indicative votes will become directive votes. Mrs May was not interested in indicative votes and now she's going to ask for direction from the House of Commons, it seems, and it may end up being a very long extension. It may be a soft Brexit and this is what some of the Tories have been describing as a betrayal. What do you say to many Conservatives, some members of Parliament, many activists who look at you, a lever, Mm. appointed to the Cabinet... Mm. And you know the words they use. They use words like coup. They use words like treason. They use words like traitor. They think you are betraying the 17 million people who voted for leave by handing the keys to Brexit to a man they loathe and they don't trust. Well, firstly, I think those sort of emotive words are not helpful given some of the things we're seeing around the debate. But I would use one word back, which is numbers. These, the reality is that the House of Commons has not voted for any of the options. And actually, many of us on the Brexiteer wing have been saying that if you didn't support the Prime Minister's deal, then the risk was a softer Brexit. That was the consequence of the numbers within the House of Commons. Uh, and it's regrettable that what we have been saying for several months 
months now is coming to pass, but that is the remorseless logic of not backing the Prime Minister's deal, because the alternative then is to have to seek votes from the opposition benches because 35 of my own colleagues wouldn't support the Prime Minister's deal. It's high stakes. There's no doubt that it's high stakes when you hear questions like that one put to the Brexit Secretary by Nick Robinson on BBC Radio 4 this morning. The Secretary talking about numbers. He had a lot to say about numbers rather than what is right and what's wrong. It's about what might be acceptable to members of the House of Commons. Well, the reality is we have to confront the numbers of the House of Commons. We are trying to unwind a very complex relationship with the European Union uh, and to do so without a majority. And we can either leave with no deal and there's legislation before the House of Commons to prevent that in law. We can leave with the Prime Minister's deal, but the House has rejected that. The House has rejected every other option that has been put to it. Uh, And so we are left with seeking in the national interest to see if an accommodation can be reached because the Labour manifesto said that they wanted to respect the referendum and there's now an opportunity to see whether the Labour Party will stand by their manifesto. Brexit Secretary Steve Barclay speaking to the BBC this morning. Well, our listeners are ever astute, as you well know, Michael. A texter, listen to this. For the first time in British history... Britain will see the end of May before the end of April. <laughs> Very good, yes, well put. I like that one. Uh, we had a caller in from Sean who thinks that if that the Irish government will have a lot of egg on their collective faces if there's a no deal because he feels that they've been indicating all along that they expect there to be a deal and no hard border. But Sean is fearing the worst today. Yeah, I'm not sure the record would show that. A statement from the Cabinet last night, as late as last night, uh, suggesting that a business prepare for a no-deal scenario. Intensifies, and that's preparations, yes. Charlie phoned in following your interview yesterday with Peter Fitzpatrick says he thought it was a very good interview that's Deputy Peter Fitzpatrick the independent TD from Loud he says it wouldn't shock you to hear that people with mental health issues are being released too soon that seems to be the status quo in this country these facilities need to be tackled more instead of palming things off we've had a mountain of comments in relation to the discussion yesterday regarding um, dog poops and the the fact that they're not being cleaned up. Cathy says on my street people stop and let their dogs do it on our doorsteps Michael. They don't pick it up. Absolutely disgraceful to open your front door to that and then we have to clean it and every single day I have to wash the buggy wheels. People couldn't care less. Mm. Mandy, it seems to be the same places all the time that the fouling occurs. It can't be that hard to police. As far as I'm aware, it's up to either the litter warden or the dog warden to deal with dog waste left behind. Maybe if we all started calling to report the dog waste every time we see it, I'm sure there would soon be a litter warden patrolling the worst hit areas. Wayne says that owners should be fined heavily. Uh, he says you wouldn't see as much poo in the elephant compound as you would on the footpaths in RD. Mm. Alfie says a few weeks ago they were on for shooting drones out of the sky. Now they want them all over the place to try and deter dumpers. He adds that most dog owners do pick up, but there is a large amount of dogs roaming about on their own, not chipped or perhaps not licensed, and that it would appear nobody is responsible for them, or so it seems. 
Uh, Jesse says dog owners have a responsibility to clean up after their own dogs. Some do, but plenty don't. Sick of it in our local estate and also on our local football pitch. Absolutely. It is uh, when you realise uh, how disgusting it is uh, if uh, you are playing football and uh, walk into it or in some other circumstance uh, that uh, you've trod on it. Uh, maybe we should make uh, the owners of these dogs wear collars instead of the dogs themselves and put them on a, a lead or curtail their movements in some way. I don't know, but there's an awful lot of people uh, who take issue with the fact uh, that they have to live with uh, the way people behave or don't behave and don't pick up after their animals, as the case may be. All right, Mary, uh, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thanks for that and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you and our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Members of an international grand committee made up of politicians from the United Kingdom, Ireland, Canada, Australia and Argentina met with the Facebook founder, chairman and chief executive Mark Zuckerberg in Dublin yesterday. The three TDs were also members of the Rochdus Communications Committee, Hildegard Nocton, James Lawless and Eamon Ryan had the rare opportunity to speak to Facebook about child protection harmful content, political interference and privacy. Let's uh, hear from one of those TDs, James Lawless, who's uh, Fianna Fáil TD for Kildare North and on the line and uh, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Why was this opportunity as rare as it appears to be to speak to Facebook like this? Okay, well I suppose it's, we've met Facebook uh, and a couple of times before I would be a regular visitor to their, to their Dublin office and they've been in to meet me in Leinster House as well. But I suppose getting to meet the number one man um, is always going to be difficult in any company. Uh, we did have Joel Kaplan, who was the worldwide number two before our Actors Committee last year. But this was a big deal, getting Zuckerberg uh, to town and getting him to meet with us uh, yesterday. Um, he is, I suppose, in demand. He, we, we, the three of us that met him yesterday, are part of an international committee, mm. as you said. We had invited him to attend that international committee in Westminster, which he declined. Uh, we're meeting again in Canada next month. Um, but it was, uh, I suppose, maybe he thought better of that uh, when he turned in the invitation last time. Maybe he relented. But I'd say, to be honest, um, I think Facebook are under pressure worldwide as well. And he instigated this meeting yesterday, did he not? He did, yeah. yeah. Facebook reached out to us. Yeah, I mean, they, 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 as I suppose, as the three people that are driving this in the doll in terms of the debate, driving on the committee uh, and driving it um, on that international committee as well. So they reached out to us, mm-hmm. said, look, he's in town. Um, he'd like to meet with legislators, policymakers, and, you know, he, he, he wants to, sometimes when CEOs or mm. big multinationals come to town, it's all about a photo op. What they said to us, and to be fair, it was borne out in the meeting, he doesn't want the photo op. Sure, if he, you know, he, he'll smile with the cameras, but he wants to sit down in a room and close the doors and have a proper one, you know, one-on-one kind of chat. Um, and we did that for about an hour and 20 minutes yesterday, which is pretty decent access to um, a man of his um, status. Okay, uh, although it was behind closed doors uh, and I think the preference would be that he would appear in public and take questions on the record and respond on the record. He declined to do that in Westminster. That International Committee will meet in uh, Dublin in November. That's and right. I That's believe right. he's considering appearing. Uh, yeah, appearing we asked him, we, we, we sent an invite. We said, look, that committee's convening again in Dublin in November. Um, we kind of, we, we invited him to come and join us and, and he said he, was, he would certainly look at, he would certainly look into that. I, I think he probably will actually because 
there's a big Dublin presence. Uh, the Dublin operation is important to them because it also controls a lot of the European, Middle East, Africa operations. Um, it's almost like the second HQ outside of the States. Mm. So it's a big, important operation for them. And um, the other thing I'd say about the meeting yesterday, it was behind closed doors, but there was no, you know, I mean, I've been quoting ex- extensively, you know, I'm about sure. to tell you what yeah. that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, you know, there was, we weren't asked to kind of keep storm or to, you know, oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah, as yeah, it came yeah, out. So, yeah, yeah. so I'm pretty much happy to tell well, everything. Te- I, I took notes and do, whatever do, I can remember. Do, you know, do, do tell us on. more, James Lawless. Uh, was uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, surprised at what you say? Do you think he, he learned anything about how Facebook operates or the concerns that you and the people you represent have about Facebook? Yeah, I think he did. I mean, we put him a number. I mean, there's a number of issues we put him. Um, electoral integrity, you know, online influence and campaigns, uh, child safety, online safety, harmful content, um, the, the, how Facebook content is moderated. Um, I challenged him on the distinction between a publisher and a platform. At the moment, they kind of get away from a lot of laws and everything from defamation to obscenity laws because they can hide behind the fact that they're a platform and they're not liable for the content. Unlike the likes of LMFM, you know, mm-hmm. or a local newspaper or a national newspaper, indeed, that actually has to stand over everything that's carried on. It's on that's a, it. Both bo- both are considered to be publishers. If exactly. you if you say something libelous now, I've published it, or LMFM yeah. has published yeah. it. In yeah. other words, as would be easier to understand in the local newspaper. Exactly. Whereas, whereas Facebook wash their hands of it and say, "Oh no, nothing to do with them." You know, it just happened to be carried on their website. But I mean, I said that's not really credible because if you actually look at what they're doing. They are targeting people with advertising. They are, know everything about you, right down to your micro-preferences. They are pushing your ads to that degree. Mm. They are also editing and approving, and someone is taking down content if they don't think it's appropriate. So I so said, look, this, this doesn't really carry water anymore. Um, well, another thing I put to him as well was about the... I actually had met some of the Facebook moderators. A lot of the moderation, again, worldwide, is actually based out of Dublin. Mm. And some of those moderators uh, are not in a good place in terms of they're, they're quite... Uh, so I was traumatised some of what they've seen, some of what they've had to do. They said their working conditions aren't great, the training was inadequate. So they're looking at things like ISIS execution videos, you know, child obscenities, mm. torture, really, really horrendous stuff. What happened and in Christchurch? Exactly, exactly. And that, that'd be the extreme example. Mm. And, and But some of these moderators, uh, so one of the guys that I met um, separate to the, yesterday's meeting, I, I met him recently, and he was telling me that the amount of content of that nature is unreal that goes onto Facebook and they have to take it down. But they're actually under so much pressure from Facebook management to turn it around so quickly that they they can't guarantee they get it right. Uh, they miss things, you know. There's things that are, mm. remain up when they shouldn't, um, and there's a whole issue there. So I said, look, we, you really need to invest in this, Mr. Zuckerberg. You need to put training, you need to put resources, artificial intelligence, if that's appropriate, um, and try to, you know, get a get a handle on that kind of content, that harmful content that is causing so much upset and, and vulnerable people, and you know, and children included. Um, on the end of that sometimes. So, you know, that, that, I put that quite strongly and based it upon... I think that might have been used to him because that was based on my meetings with the Dublin moderators. Um, and he, I suppose that would have been something maybe he wouldn't have been as aware of, that kind of first-hand accounts of what, what, how that system worked in Dublin. Facebook is very much a, aware of everything about us, as you say, because of the data they collect. Sometimes they know what we're thinking before we think it ourselves. Uh, and they use that data for that purpose so that others, at least, can tell us how to think and what to think and when to think it. Uh, Cambridge Analytica uh, is uh, one of uh, the main offenders, it would seem, at least uh, that's uh, according to the UK Information Commission uh, and uh, Facebook faced a fairly hefty fine over that, but they're repeating it. What did he have to say to you about that? Yeah, so I put that to him direct. So I said, look at Mark, I said, you're talking the talk, but are you, are you going to walk the walk? I said, you're going to have to carry through with some good faith here. 
Uh, and I put him a couple of specific things he could do if he's minded to do so uh, as a gesture of good faith. And one of the things I said to him was, I said, look, you're on the hook for a half a million fine um, in, in the UK for your data breaches. Um, if you're putting your hands up and doing this kind of world tour, saying how sorry you are and how you want to make everything right, it would be a good gesture of intent if you dropped your appeal. Because um, you can't be saying, on the one hand, we're very sorry, but actually, by the way, my lawyer is going to court tomorrow to fight it. So he didn't, he didn't accept that. Um, he said on that particular issue, he, he, he thinks that they're in the right. Um, he said there's an issue in third-party sharing and third-party uh, content being, being removed across their platform or to other platforms. Um, and he said he wanted to fight that. To be honest, I actually respected him more nearly for, rather than fudging it mm. uh, and saying, you know, we'll, we'll look into that. He said, you know what, no. He said, we're actually going to fight that because we, we believe in the principle. And we had a kind of technical discussion about the particular issue there. Mm. Um, another thing I put to him was, in Ireland which, of course, houses their, their European headquarters, the night before the GDPR came into effect, the GDPR is the European-wide data protection regulation mm. uh, that was passed by all of Europe last year. The bane of a lot of people's lives, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and our politicians as well, because we send out so many newsletters, etc., and we have to be very careful now about mm. who we do and don't include and all that kind of thing. Um, so, and I sat on the committee, actually, that, would, that processed that in the Justice Committee last year in, in painstaking detail, uh, a lot of long days, uh, and some mind-numbing days as well. But I, I, the night before that came into law, uh, the Facebook servers in Dublin shipped 1.5 billion users out of Dublin, off the Dublin servers, over to the United States into a data center over there. And I said to him, I said, Mark, if you're so um, bought into this new data protection regime and you're so keen to protect all the users... Why did you have to take 1.5 billion of them out of the system the night before a more stringent data protection law came into effect? Mm-hmm. And he kind of, I think he was a little bit thrown by that. Um, he kind of had did a quick huddle with his advisors. Um, and I said, Mark, this isn't, I'm not making this up. This is actually quite widely reported at the time. Um, I think your local team will confirm it. And he put his hands up and said, yeah, do you know what? He said, that looks bad. He said, I appreciate that. Um, he did say, and I suppose I can see some of his logic here. He said, look, we had to apply the GDPR to the European users. He said a lot of the users on the systems in Dublin were from Europe, sorry, from Middle East, Africa, wider afield. He said they had enough on their plans trying to apply the, this new rule to the users they had to apply it to without extending it to, you know, voluntarily to another 1.5 billion that they didn't, weren't legally obliged to apply it to. Mm. So, I, look, I suppose he's, it's one of those things, it's, it's the letter of the law, but maybe not the spirit of the law. Um, so I said, look, Mark, you know what? If you could actually put those users back into Dublin servers, again, that would show good faith. So he said, look, we're not going to do it overnight, but yeah, look, we'll, we'll, we'll look into doing that. Um, but he did say that uh, he believes the GDPR should be rolled out worldwide uh, as the gold standard, um, which I suppose is a, is a thumbs up to European regulators and legislators um, that, that that's kind of, you know, maybe the, the world standard to follow. I've heard that elsewhere as well, that maybe it could could become the global norm for data protection. And he's asking legislators and regulators to help define what content is and is not appropriate, because a lot of people are obviously concerned about bullying or harmful content with sexual predators targeting children online and that sort of thing. Yeah, the harmful content is really hard uh, to define. We've had that before the committee as well, uh, before the Communications Committee. We have engaged with the Australian Digital... Australia has a Digital Safety Commissioner, which is a kind of a state body uh, regulator set up to actually patrol the internet, basically, and kind of police online content and then find people who are hosting it or allowing it to be hosted on their sites. So they, well, a lot of the crux of this issue is what's harmful content. So what might be harmful to, to me or you, uh, or sorry, what, what, we, what we may consider perhaps mild or you know, unoffensive, somebody else might take a serious issue with. Um, it's all about 
it, it can be subjective. Now, there are certain things that I think that we'd all agree go beyond the pale, but it's those cases that sit on the line. Um, and then there's freedom of speech issues and freedom of expression. Uh, and that, that can be difficult to say. So if somebody is making a political comment or a political charge or if somebody's being critical of somebody else, is it bullying or is it robust debate? You know, there's, there's some of these issues, but have, of course there are some areas that are pretty cut and dried um, and they need to get tougher on that. Um, and I did put that to him as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose, look at it again, he, he, he's, it's not the first time he's heard this. Um, he did say they're struggling to get a grip on some of this, um, particularly around some of the, I suppose, the volume of content uh, with 2.5 billion users worldwide um, turning out content every day, you know, every minute or every day. He, he did admit that it can be hard to get a, a handle on it, but I think he's, they're talking about more use of artificial intelligence as well to, to kind of keep tabs and maybe identify harmful content before it gets, you know, gets viral uh, and certain measures like that that they're exploring at the moment. Okay. Interesting stuff. Uh, I'm sure we'll hear more. Uh, hopefully, uh, we'll uh, hear directly from Mr. Zuckerberg in uh, Dublin in November, but we'll leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us. James Lawless, Fianna Fáil TD for Kildare North, is his party spokesperson on science, technology, research and development. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Central Bank, the European Central Bank and uh, the Department of Finance have expressed concerns uh, to the Finance Committee over proposed legislation which would prevent the sale of mortgages uh, to vulture funds. Uh, This is Sinn Féin's No Consent, No Sale Bill, which was... Proposed by Pierce Doherty, the deputy leader of Sinn Féin, who joins us now. And a very good morning to you, and thanks uh, for joining us uh, this morning. I suppose you've been given some food for thought uh, about uh, what was undoubtedly a well-intentioned piece of legislation. Uh, look, we, we expected uh, the central bank to to make the comments that it made, um, and particularly the Department of Finance. I think actually the central bank's comments were, were quite helpful uh, because they went through the bill in, in, in detail and, and pointed out some of the areas that we can improve the bill at, at committee stage. Their major concern in relation to the piece of legislation was around the issue of securitisation which isn't intended to be captured within the bill. And when I put this to the central bank, uh, that if that was made clear that that was exempt, uh, would that allay their concerns and said that would allay the majority of their concerns. So that 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 probably takes away some of the, the major headlines that you're reading in, in terms of the newspapers. In terms of the Department of Finance, I think actually some of their um, their contribution was uh, was quite poor. Um, you know, I, I asked them, for example, that, that the reason... They, you know, they're they're trying their scaremongering tactic that this is about this would push up costs on ordinary people, increase interest mm. rates, and so on. But they told us that about another piece of legislation, and we didn't listen. We continue to push through the piece of legislation. It is now law, and instead of interest rates actually going up, they're coming down. Uh, and when we asked the, the 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 same officials in the department to actually justify how they got it so wrong that time and how they can be so sure this time, you know, they basically couldn't uh, they couldn't answer the question. So. Like, you know, and You've had written communication from Mario Draghi, who seems to support that view, though. That's the uh, head of the European Central Bank. Not, not in relation to interest rates. The, the issue in terms of the, the major issue that uh, this, the Central Bank would have in the ECB, which are obviously part of the same system, um, is the issue of around securitisation and the fact that the banks would not be able to access ECB collateral into the future. That's not the intention of this bill. This bill is very simple. This bill is to stop the banks selling your loan to a vulture fund without your consent. It's not about stopping the banks being able to raise money for the bank on the back mm. of your loan. So what do they do uh, so then? I mean, this is the question that both the Central Bank and the European Central Bank have been asking. Uh, and if... 
they can't sell it on to a vulture fund. Uh, they're still going to have an obligation to deal with uh, a loan that is not performing, and that could result in repossession or, or not, which could have a significant impact on the economy overall or on the impact of mortgage pricing, which undoubtedly would lead to higher interest rates, would it not? Well, first of all, we've got the highest interest rates in the, in the European Union, running over twice um, what the European but average is. very low. Should there was a time, many of us remember when they were 16 17%. Yeah, and the, re- the reason they were at a high rate is because the ECB rate was high. We have now an ECB rate at zero. Uh, and we have, and this, is, this isn't simply in speak, this is the, Euro- the central bank and indeed the Department of Finance acknowledge this, that we have twice the, the uh, on average, twice the rates that there mm. is anywhere else in Europe. Now, the reality is, but you're 100% right, of course banks need to deal with these mortgages. Uh, and you talk about non-performing. It's not just non-performing loans that are being sold to, to the vulture funds now. And this is the point I was making. There is absolutely no loan that is safe from being sold from a, to a vulture fund. The last sale of loans, 6,000 loans in Project Glass, mm. was loans that are all restructured, that everybody was meeting the terms of the restructuring. And lo and behold, Permanent TSB decided to offload them. They took a, a 400 million euro hit. They gave them to the vulture fund for 400 million euro less than what they were worth. Um, and now the vulture has them. And, when I and, what, and what's happened to the people with the mortgages? They continue to live in the houses. Well, first, well, first of all, they, they and they'll only, ultimately they're, they're, buy them, and that will be the end of their loan, will it not? Sorry, they'll ultimately buy the houses and become uh, the property owners, and that'll be the end of their loan. Uh, there's no, no, no consequence; no, no, no. Their, their contract hasn't changed. Once you're uh, meeting the terms of your contract and repaying your mortgage, there is no consequence, is there? Regardless of, of, of who of it's sold to. Of course, there is. Of course, there is, and this is the point I was, I was about to make. I questioned, I quizzed the, the central bank in relation to this. First of all. Many of the central, many of the vultures do not offer the same type of restructuring as the banks do. If you listen to MABS, which also made a submission in relation to my legislation, they say that 75% of those who have loans sold to the vultures are in a worse off position because they have less options as a result of being sold to vultures. What do you, so mean, for example, what do you mean less options? I mean, well, you're, well, you're, 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 well you've, you've gone past the first option, which is paying back your mortgage as agreed. Now you're talking about somebody who isn't in a position to do that and is asking to re structure and pay back less well yeah yes of course yes are, so so it goes do. back to the point I, I made a moment ago if you continue to pay your mortgage under the terms of your contract there is no consequence of your loan being sold well, first to of all there, there are two consequences first of all if you can pay your mortgage in full and you have no problem in relation to paying your mortgage in full then there is likely to be very little consequences, although there could be consequences mm. while they deal with you. But most of the people who are being sold to the vultures are actually involved in restructuring and are meeting the terms of the restructuring. The problem is, is when those restructures... Okay, you just underlined the point you made a moment ago. No, I haven't, because they're you, restructured you said, you said, you yes, said that, that they were all performing loans. Yes, because they're meeting the restructuring arrangement. But that restructure is up in, uh, for review every three mm. years. And after that three years, they, the new vulture fund will decide what type of restructure to afford them. Now, for example, if Promotory is the person who, who, who bought your loan, if you were in a restructured and a split mortgage, they would have to abide by that. Once the, re, the review period is, is up, then Promotory don't do split mortgages. So you aren't going to get that anymore. When I question the central bank of what happens if a vulture fund tomorrow morning decides to put up interest rates by 2%, there's nothing we can do. 
Mm. Absolutely nothing we can do. No. Now, the banks could decide to put up interest rates tomorrow morning by mm. 2%. Yep. But the reality is the banks are dependent on our deposits. They're looking at our student loans. They're mm. looking at agricultural loans. They're looking at commu- a different type of mm. uh, business supports. A vulture fund who buys a portfolio, which is in a, this SPV vehicle that is only set up a number of weeks before the sale takes place, they're only interested in one thing, and that is to make the maximum amount of profits of the loans that they have purchased. Mm. Once they make that, they're out of the country. And that is the problem that is always riskier having your loans with a vulture fund as, it, as, as opposed to having it with a main and bank. I, I suppose that's one of the reasons the central bank introduced uh, the lending rules, which have been the subject of much criticism in, in recent years. But if somebody isn't paying back their mortgage repayments in full, who is paying it? Somebody has to pay it, don't they? Well, first of all, let's not forget that the Irish people already bailed out these banks. And the calculation of the amount of money that we bailed out the banks for was because the banks estimated at that time that in relation to their mortgage book, that they weren't going to get all of the money back. Let's also remember that the banks have already accounted for the the the, the loss that mm. they were going to that, that they were going to uh, ensue. In, in but when AIB sells, for example, AIB mm. has announced a sale earlier this week of a billion euro uh, of, 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 of loans. Remember, they're giving a write down to the vultures of 700 million because the vultures is only buying this for 300 million euro. Now, they're not passing that on to the local shopkeeper in Drogheda or in Donegal or what else who's trying to keep his business afloat and has run into serious difficulties in terms of debt. Mm. But they are going to pass that on to the vulture. But they've balanced their books, which means it has no consequence on the person who is paying back their mortgage in full. If they don't have the ability to do that, well then, what options do they have? They could repossess the home that isn't paying back their mortgage, or uh, they could live with the consequences, or ask me to live with the consequences and increase my mortgage by 2% as a, a result. That very thing that you're trying to avoid. No. No, that's not the point. The point is that they're writing down this debt. AIB is writing down this debt. They have taken a write-down of 70% on, the, on, on these debts. In terms of Project Glass, they took a write-down of 33%. So they, in terms of the Code of Conduct of Mortgage Arrears, there is a suite of options which banks can do. They can do debt equity, they can do write-down, they can do split mortgages, they can do arrears capitalization. The problem is, is that banks, for example, do not do write-downs. Uh, the only write-down they will give is they will give the vulture the write-down, but they will not give the homeowner or they will not give the business person. Now, I'm not, I'm not somebody who advocates, uh, and I believe that anybody who, who intentionally does not pay back their mortgages, who has the ability to do so, like those people are going to lose their homes. And there's no, there's no ifs, buts, or maybes about that. But for people who are, who are genuinely making an attempt to, uh, you know, after scrutinising their financial uh, affairs, that they're genuinely making an attempt to pay back their mortgages, yes, of course, that those individuals should look at all of the options, the bank should look at all of the options that the central bank have outlined, including debt write-downs for them, instead of just allowing the central, or allowing the vulture fund uh, to, to, okay. to pick up the, uh, and uh, at nearly nothing. The Finance Committee is looking at your bill now because it received the support of the majority of TDs in the Dáil. Uh, but there is a question over the constitutionality of it. Uh, the government didn't support your bill and may need to sign a money message uh, in order for it to become law. That seems to be the view of uh, the department. Uh, but you've heard otherwise from uh, the clerk of the Dáil. 
Well, first of all, it's like, look, the government are hell-bent against this and the department are obviously acting in back behind the government. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me what the department said yesterday, Michael. Like, the department, you know, I can remember being outside the gates of Leinster House with people who had state-owned banks selling their loans to vultures. During that time, the minister and the department officials met with vulture funds 125 times in the space of three years. So while the ordinary people were outside the gate and couldn't get access to the corridor of power, what was happening inside government buildings and elsewhere was that vulture funds were being uh, were being listened to, were, were given the access to the corridor of powers. And these are the same vulture funds, remember, that refused every single one of them, refused to present themselves before an Eritus committee here in the House of the Raptors. So like, I've no time for them. I know the consequences of people loans being sold to vultures. And what we have from the department is they're trying to, 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 to throw everything at this bill because they know that this bill is for the people and against the type of vultures. So, yeah, they did come out and they said this needs a money message. It's not me that decides that. It's the Houses of the Rockets that decides that. They've made a preliminary decision which is, no, it does not need a money message, which means the government can't use the old tactic of money message to stall this to stall this legislation. The second thing is mm-hmm. they came out and they said yesterday and they gave this all to the media so that the bill would have kind of, that there would be negative view of it before it even reached committee yesterday that it's unconstitutional. Yesterday, when we gr- when we actually grilled the department official, actually, what did the attorney general say? He says, well, the attorney general didn't say it's unconstitutional. The attorney general said that it impacts on property rights and may be unconstitutional. Sure, we all know that. We know the constitution. We know that the property rights are protected in the constitution, but we also know that there's limitations on those property rights. And the two limitations that are set out in the constitution are whether it is in the common good and whether it is in relation to social justice. Now, the, our own committee, as part of the process that we have to go through with legislation, has got preliminary legal advice, and they have not said that this is unconstitutional. So I've no doubt, Michael, mm-hmm. I'm in for a battle yep. in relation to this here. We've all the bankers. I, 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 people stopping me in the street who work in banks and who work in, in, in legal profession who deal with these sales, and they are telling me that I have ruffled so much feathers with the banking industry that they are very, very scared that this bill is going to go through because they know that this ends their practice of selling loans under without the consent of the borrower to the vultures. And remember, this this is the central bank's own code of practice that they introduced in 1991, a code of practice that six years ago, the Minister for Finance told us on the record of the doll that every single bank should be applying this, regardless if the code is voluntary or not. What I'm doing is I'm putting this into law because Every bank has ignored this code of practice. And when I put the, the, the code into law, what we get is this type of reaction. And to tell you the truth, when I hear that so many bankers are annoyed about this here, I feel that I must be doing something right. Pierce Doherty, thank you very much indeed for joining thank us you. here on the programme this morning. Uh, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on finance and deputy leader. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, there's almost 4,000 children who are homeless in this country, 3,784 children who do not have a place to call home. They go to school and on many occasions have difficulties. But the extent of these problems are unknown. Fianna Fáil will ask the government to identify what problems there are that children are experiencing in education and to set aside a fund of €5 million Euro to provide for the needs of these children. It's a motion that's being brought forward by TD for me, the East, Thomas Byrne, who's the Fianna Fáil education spokesperson and on the line. Good morning to you and thanks for morning, joining Michael. us here this morning. Uh, €5 million Euro, it seems a, a lot of money. No, it's 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 a tiny amount of money in the 
the overall education budget. And I think uh, the position here, Michael, is that the problem has been in relation to the education of children who are homeless uh, is very, very high. Um, if we leave things as they are with the Department of Education literally having no policy whatsoever uh, to deal with children who are homeless or who are living in temporary accommodation or in hotels mm. or in family hubs, um, they will pay an educational price that they don't, they don't deserve to pay. And I think what we're looking for in the motion, first and foremost, is actually not money. It's actually a government policy that somebody in the Department of Education would say, as the minister would say, uh, that somebody is now going to take this on as their particular role uh, within the Department of Education. We've seen some moves in the Department of Children, Catherine's opponent to her credit, has done certain things in relation to, to preschool and, and indeed transport uh, and items like that. Uh, but there has been actually nothing done in the Department of Education in relation to this. So we don't have a policy in relation to homeless children and education. We don't have research, uh, apart from what the Children's Rights Alliance have done. Uh, and what, what we do know, though, is that many of these children are suffering interruptions to their education, and that will have a long-term damaging effect on those children. And the education bill is what about fourteen billion euro, fourteen thousand billion. It's, it's, it's massive. So yeah, what we're yeah, looking, yeah. we're, so we're looking for really five million out of that fourteen thousand million. Yes. So uh, in that context, it's a, a very small amount of money. But in, in terms of the homeless issue, it seems a lot of money because Fianna Fáil pledged to solve the homeless problem in the last budget. It was to be the homeless budget, was it not? Well, Michael, first of all, we're using, if you, if you want to go to the, to the last budget, I'm more than happy to do that. I thought I was coming on the show to talk about the educational attainment of homeless children, which is not discussed at all, Michael, and I think is a worthy topic of discussion. I'm happy to answer any questions. I agree with you completely. No, uh, what I'm saying to you is uh, that you uh, failed uh, to support uh, the motion of confidence in the Minister because of the homelessness uh, 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 problems uh, and a number of other issues, and Look, said that you were going to address it in the budget, and then when the budget was announced, you described it as a housing budget and that it would bring about the end of the problems. Here we have the worst situation. Well, we, I, 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 I'm not sure that we said it would bring about the end of the problem. Okay, I think everybody okay. everybody in politics should you. be trying to bring about the end of the problem, Michael, and that's certainly what I'm trying to do. And in my role as education spokesperson for the party, I'm addressing the issue of education, the issue of, of how we make sure these children are educated. There's not one person in the doll, to my understanding, has raised this issue before now. Mm. And I think that it is an important aspect of the crisis and that these children's futures, not alone their, their present, their housing situation is absolutely outrageous, but their futures have been put at risk uh, because of the homelessness crisis. And I'm trying to make sure that the Department of Education addresses this. And someone has to speak up mm. uh, for these children. And their but you don't think it's hypocritical? I mean, to, to, to be speaking up now, when people said to you, would you do something to stop this disgrace, the, the, the shameful situation of, of the number of homeless people in this country continuing to rise, the number of children who are without a home continuing to rise on an ongoing basis. And Fianna Fáil's response was, well, keeping the government in place is far more important uh, in the run-up to Brexit uh, and uh, we'll address it in the budget. Nothing uh, of consequence happened in the budget. In fact, the figures have worsened. They have worsened, and I think those questions you'll have to put to the government and the minister who's there. We, at the time, by the way, there was emotional confidence in Owen Murphy. It was only put down when Fianna Fáil said that we wouldn't support it. I mean, Sinn Féin were going on and on for months and months and months about it, threatening emotional confidence in Owen Murphy. I, I personally don't think it would make any difference as to which Fianna Fáil minister uh, was in power. What we want to see is 
uh, hopefully Brexit sorted. That is a major catastrophe uh, awaiting this island that will actually would actually make the homelessness crisis worse if there's an old deal Brexit because uh, because of the economic consequences. In fact, we're already starting to feel. Um, so we felt that the government and I think these issues and these arguments have been extremely well rehearsed. and I'm happy to do it again uh, that the, the Brexit situation presented the country with a unique crisis that forced Fianna Fáil in our in our view. And I think people generally speaking agree with us, although it is frustrating for them and it's very frustrating for us. Uh, to stay uh, with with the situation that we have uh, for another year. We can't have an election every few months, which would happen. If I were to have an election every time you've asked me to have an election or suggested that we pull the plug over the last four years, I don't know how many elections we'd have had. Mm. I think it would be instructive. But, but I would agree in, in one sense that this is obviously uh, a key issue. There's no well, question I'm about not, that. I'm not asking you to have elections. I'm asking you to stand over the decisions uh, that you've taken, uh, the decisions uh, that you've taken uh, to keep uh, the government in office when you've sat in your hands on homelessness on air grid, on whatever the issues have been, uh, and not to come back then complaining about the consequence of it, which is a, a, a shameful situation that has almost 4,000 children without a home in this country. Well, if you want me to actually address problems and to try to solve situations, uh, to try and make life better for people, that's what I'm trying to do as a TD and as an education spokesperson. That's what I'm trying to do with this motion. This is one aspect, this motion I've put forward in the Dáil this week, of the homeless crisis that simply has not been looked at by anybody except the Children's Rights Alliance. And they brought it to my attention mm-hmm. and I'm bringing it before the Dáil to try to get government action in relation to this. I think it's a crying shame uh, that nothing has been done in relation to this. I've given some credit to Catherine Spohn. She has taken some measures within her department insofar as she can uh, within the Department of Children. The Fine Gael Party simply doesn't seem as interested. We see in the polls at the weekend where 3 in 10 are satisfied uh, with the government's performance in housing and 3 in 10 uh, support uh, Fine Gael. So I think people need to look closely uh, at what their priorities are. I know what my priorities are is to make sure that every child in this country gets the education that they are constitutionally entitled to and that they deserve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not happening uh, and with homeless what, children. What would you like to spend this money on? How would you like to support uh, homeless children in their education? Well, it will, it will cost nothing, first of all, to have an official in the Department of Education to actually look at this, to start the research. That will cost very, very little. To examine whether July provision, which is basically extra education in July, which is provided to some children with disabilities at the moment, but to see whether that could be extended uh, and whether it would be worth or needed uh, to be extended uh, to children who are homeless and are suffering gaps in their education, maybe because the, the, where they're staying now is too far from school, they can't get to school, or um, is that, that and that's common enough in terms of what, what the research shows that the Children's Rights Alliance have done uh, in terms of homeless families. So, so we... First of all, the government needs to actually understand the problem, and they don't, because there's been no research done by them, and the, the research done by the Children's Rights Alliance is limited enough, but it does show uh, devastating consequences. So, so that's the first thing that has to happen. But what we're looking at is extra supports, such as that extra education in July, uh, school meals uh, provision as well, but that's needed. That is provided in some schools in disadvantaged areas, uh, but it's not provided in all schools, and, and lots of homeless children uh, don't go to school in disadvantaged areas. They go to school in, in, in so-called advantaged areas, and they, those schools don't have those extra supports. Now, what I would say is, Michael, that there is good work happening on the ground, uh, and schools uh, do indeed... Um, we know rally around families and uh, support them usually privately and confidentially because people don't mm-hmm. necessarily want other people to know their circumstances. The work burnout uh, does and, and, and so and, forth. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and there are there are good examples of parents 
councils coming together and providing meals where they're necessary. Okay. Uh, but there's absolutely no coordination of that at national level. All right, I have to leave there. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us. I will hear more on that motion later in the day. Finnefall TD, for me, these Thomas Byrne brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.